So I heard uh, one pastor say that fasting is the kale of spiritual disciplines. Uh, we all know it's good for us, but we rarely choose it on the menu, uh, which is true. I mean, come on, just go with me to Chick-fil-A, right? And those waffle fries or that mac and cheese is so much better than that kale salad. I mean, there's just no comparison. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? We don't really want it, even though we know it might be good for us. And what do I mean by spiritual disciplines? Well, uh, these are things that we incorporate into our lives, into our routine, to help us grow in our love of the Lord and to engage him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, where we're leaning on him in ways that we don't normally do so. Things like prayer and solitude and memorizing scripture and even fellowship Something we like to call Lectio Divina is a good spiritual discipline. Lectio meaning listening, where you take a scripture, just a small passage, a short passage, maybe a couple of verses, and you really meditate upon it, reflect upon it, and then listen. Listen to what the Lord may be saying to you in that. These are all spiritual disciplines. Journaling is a good spiritual discipline. And fasting is certainly a spiritual discipline. But where we get tripped up when it comes to spiritual disciplines is that we start thinking that our practicing them is what makes us holy uh, or earns us certain merit badges with God. Right? I was an Eagle Scout, and so I used to have a sash of merit badges, and I wore them proudly, all these little badges of things that I had earned. And you could see how smart I was and how good of a scout I was based on my merit badge sash. But our spiritual disciplines are not a merit badge sash we wear around. It's not what gets us in good with God, as Katie said, we are already made righteous, not by what we do, but by what he has done. So it's not our discipline in fasting, praying, journaling, memorizing scripture that makes us holy. It's what God does in us in the process that produces righteousness and fruit of the spirit, which is what we are all after. Uh, Don and I love um, a little book by a Lutheran pastor that was a very good friend of Brother Charles and Brother John's named Larry Christensen. And the book is entitled The Renewed Mind. And in that book, Larry says that spiritual disciplines are like the wooden forms, the, the two-by-fours or two-by-sixes or eights or tens, however big the form is, that people stake down on the ground to frame out where they're going to pour cement for a patio or a foundation or a car driveway. So those wooden forms are not the slab. You would, you would be silly to try to build a house on the foundation of two-by-fours. They would rot and give way. They would not be effective. And you wouldn't want to park your car on that. But without them, what gets poured won't be of very much use. 
And spiritual disciplines are those forms in our lives. They are the things that are framed out and what God pours in. But it's what God pours in that is the substance. What we frame out is just a means by which we can receive it. And fasting is one such form. It is a two by four. It's the kale of spiritual disciplines that interrupts our daily routine and, and it helps us understand that we need God more than we need the food that we eat or anything else that is applied to our lives. Though we need him, he is the source of all life. He is what sustains us. He's what gives us what we need. It pushes us past this low-risk, low-commitment Christianity that so many people choose to live in. It, it forces us to examine our hearts, to look at them like an x-ray, seeing right through us to see where we've missed it, where we're missing the mark, and how we need to submit to the Holy Spirit's renovation of our lives. And as we say no to our hunger and to our appetites, and to our comfort, and to the things we normally apply to our lives, even good things, setting them aside in order that we might reflect on him, which is better. As we do that, we find ourselves more dependent on his grace and, and more desperate for his presence and power and more dedicated to his mission. We fast because our sanctification is not yet complete. We fast because the world we live in is wrought with pain and suffering. We fast because all creation is groaning for redemption. We fast because all of his enemies have not yet been made his footstool. As you read the Bible, as you, which is a good thing to do during this time of fasting. That's one of those things that you should be adding as you take certain other things away. But as you read the Bible, you're going to see lots of individuals and groups and even nations as a whole who fast, who seek the Lord for his forgiveness and healing, for his intervention and his direction. Moses fasted 40 days and nights on both occasions that God called him up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. That's 80 days in just a short period of time. Obviously, the Lord had to sustain him. And Aaron fasted when his son died. And Hannah fasted because she didn't have a son. But God heard her cry and gave her Samuel, who became one of the greatest prophet leaders Israel ever had. David and his men fasted when they heard of King Saul's death. And Jehoshaphat, he fasted and called all of Judah to fast. He proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah, for they were facing an army that was threatening their existence. Esther, she called upon all the Jewish people to fast for three days to prevent their, their impending doom. And Daniel fasted. You can read about it in Daniel 10. For 21 days... He gave up sweets and meats and delicacies and wine 
And he gave those things up, and the Lord dispatched an angel on the very moment he began praying, though resisted by the evil one for all those 21 days and a few days beyond. And then the messenger showed up and revealed to Daniel all that would be happening in Israel's future. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they both fasted and called upon the people of Israel to do so as well, as they were commissioned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, to bring back worship the God of Judah and also the walls of the city. This practice of fasting you will find throughout Scripture. And it's always been marked in the lives of God's people. Even Jesus fasted, and he expects and intends for his followers to do so as well. After being blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus fasted for three days and nights before God sent Ananias to come and pray for him for the restoration of his sight. And fasting was a major part of the New Testament church. Like when the leaders of the church in Antioch, including Saul, who we also know as Paul, and Barnabas, along with three other very diverse leaders, they were gathered together, and the Bible says that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said to them in the midst of this prayer and fasting, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So what did they do? They prayed and fasted a little bit more. The church decided to gather with them and prayed and fasted even more and then eventually prayed for them and sent them off onto the very first mission of its kind where they preached to everyone where they went and they saw many come to faith in Christ, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit and churches sprang up wherever they went. And each time a church would spring up and Paul and Barnabas were about to be leaving, what did they do again? They prayed and fasted that the Lord would appoint and select those who could be leaders and caregivers to this th- the little fledgling church they were leaving behind. There's a strong biblical precedent for this spiritual discipline of fasting. It's in the Bible. And it's what we do every January. And it becomes, really, for many of us, a focal point of our whole year. It's what the elders have decided is an important time for us corporately that we could set aside good things in order to seek that which is better, that we could seek the Lord while he may be found, that we could lay aside those things that encumber us from giving full devotion to him. And so as James has already said, we'll be doing that for three weeks, 21 days, starting Wednesday night, the 5th. But what I want to leave with us this morning as we consider these things going into this month, I want us to look at the simple, straightforward instruction and also the warnings that Jesus offered from his Sermon on the Mount we find in Matthew 6. And so we look at Matthew 6 and verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. 
and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm sure as we read those passages, you see the mirror image that's going on. You see the, the redundancy You see the contrast that Jesus is making. First, Jesus didn't say, if you pray and if you fast, but rather, when you pray and when you fast. His assumption is that we will do both. And so Jesus commissioned us to do so. But notice he doesn't specify how long or how frequent or in what manner that we're to pray and fast. There's freedom for us as individuals in Christ to discern what type and the timing and the length of our fast. It's not a religious mandate. It's a relational experience. Ask the Lord what he would have you do. Ask what the Holy Spirit is leading you into, what to set aside, what to forego for these days in order to seek him. He's able to speak to you. He does speak to you. The question is, will we sit long enough to hear what he said? Something else noteworthy from this teaching that Jesus gives is the contrast that he makes between how we are to pray and fast and the prayer and fasting of those he calls hypocrites. Those who prayed and fasted for one reason, apparently, Did you catch what it was? To be seen by others. Jesus said on both accounts, they've received the reward. There's no benefit beyond what other people got to see. Wow, doesn't he look holy? Look at his disfigured face. Boy, he sure does seem unhappy. He's hangry. He's not happy at all. He's hangry. But oh, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, they fasted. They did it, by the way, The Old Testament only sanctioned one day a year of fasting, the Day of Atonement. And the Pharisees had turned it into fasting two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays every week. That's where they're going to fast. They were going to look it. They were going to do it. Everybody was going to know it. They were going to hear about it. We're hangry, but we're doing it for the Lord. Jesus says, don't do that. Did you notice that Jesus didn't contrast how we are to pray and fast with those who don't do it, but with rather those who do do it, but for the wrong reason. That's the contrast here. Not those that are out there not doing it, but rather those who are doing it, but for all the wrong reasons. Those who did do it and didn't do it the right way, they were falling into a pitfall. And And that's what Jesus is addressing for all of us, that as we apply these spiritual disciplines, these forms, wooden forms that allows for God to pour in substance in our lives, if we're not careful, 
by applying those disciplines to our lives, we will fall into a pitfall. And Jesus talks about them. Pitfalls, things like formalism, which is just this regimented thing of doing it, regulating it, no matter whether your heart is in it or not. Formalism, that is fasting, but it is a routine that is devoid of power and of purpose. And as Jesus said, they've already earned their reward. There's another type of pitfall that people can fall into as they're fasting or applying any other spiritual discipline to their life, and that's legalism, where now they feel really certain that what they're doing is gaining them real merit. They're getting another merit badge for their sash. And now their fasting has earned them something with God. And so this now obligates God to do something for them because I fasted. And so I've become legalistic in my approach. It's like fasting loads up some sort of heavenly debit card that we can use later on down the road whenever a transaction comes up that we have to spend on. So formalism where it's regulated and rigid and has no life and no spirit leading. And legalism, where we think somehow it's what we do that gets the good things and everybody else is missing it because they don't do it. Those are pitfalls. But maybe the biggest pitfall we can all fall prey to is pride. Spiritual pride. Where we think we are more spiritual, enlightened, or mature because of what we do, what we've learned, and who we are. Spiritual pride. We should know better. God God says he resists the proud while he gives grace to the humble, but we can be so dismissive when it comes to our own pride. We really can. I've heard people say, and I, I think I've probably said it myself, Don't ask God to deal with your pride if you're not willing to be humble. I've said things like that. You probably have too. And that's true. But shouldn't we always want God to deal with our pride? Do we really want to hang on to it? Well, yes, we're proud. We don't like him touching the thing that keeps us resistant to him. Pride kills So what we should be saying is, Lord, deal with my pride at all points, on all days, at every avenue. Deal with our spiritual pride. Don't let it keep us from you. Jesus told this parable, you're probably familiar with it, a parable of a Pharisee, hypocrite, who was going up to the temple to pray, and also there was this Sinner, they called him a publican, who knew he was worthless in the sight of God. And these two went up to pray, and the sinner, the publican, he was beating his chest and asking, God, have mercy on me. He wasn't looking at anyone else. He wasn't clinging to any pride. He was recognizing his destitute state that he needed God. And the Pharisee, the hypocrite, stood there, and he said, I thank God that I am not like others. And he pointed to the sinner. How many times have we read that story and said to ourselves, I thank God I'm not like the Pharisee? Because there's not any difference. 
If we can have pride enough to think, well, I'm not that bad, then we're just like the Pharisee who said, they're the ones that are really bad. It's just prideful. It's pride that keeps us from God. Tim Keller said that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing it. If our spiritual disciplines, including fasting, are not are going to do any good for us at all, then we have to avoid all pitfalls of spiritual disciplines, things like pride and legalism and, and formalization of things, rigidity and religious rules. We have to be in the spirit. And we have to realize that how we pray and fast is just as important that we pray and fast. And that's why Jesus simply said in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's something about this secret place. The Father is there. It's where he wants us to be. It's where he pours into what we've formed out to receive. May his words instruct us in this season of prayer and fasting. May they direct us to be closer to him and less prideful and less formalized unless legalist. May we be more about the Father's business in his secret place. Amen. Donna's going to come, and we're going to receive at the Lord's table. And for those of you that did not get the elements, we're going to go back to doing this at our chairs this month and then see what the Lord will help us with in the future. But if you have not received the elements, Bobby is there with the elements in a basket. If you just raise your hand, he'll make sure to get them to you. And so once you have the elements, you feel free to take off your mask and um, pull back the top layer of the cellophane where you can get to the wafer, the bread. Donna's going to share with us. We're going to pray for the bread and we'll all receive together. And then we will pray for the cup and receive that as well. Some of you may know a book by Richard Foster called Celebration of Discipline. Um, And it's one of those books that once I read it, I need to go through it periodically. Um, because I leak. (laughs) But one of the things that he says is that fasting is not for the very moral or the very strong. It's not for the super Christians. It's for the weak and the needy. I qualify. And if you've not fasted before because you think it's the super Christian, let me just say, this is for you. 
as Chris talked us through those scriptures that we know very well, it's clear that fasting is something God initiates and he enables us to do it. We can't do it without him. Just like we can't read and understand the word without what the Holy Spirit does. This is a God-empowered activity. But if your mind needs to be cleaned, your path needs to be clear, your motives need to be purified, you need integrity in your walk. If you need to know what's controlling you, and keeping you from experiencing the great things that we talk about when we're all together in our gatherings, then fasting is the next step. Mm. Not because it's magic, not because it's calling our genie to come and grant all our wishes, but because it puts you in a place where you cannot miss God. He pays attention. He comes near. And when he comes near, we get better. Yes. Not just our lives and what we are experiencing, but our hearts, the way we think about things, our choices that we make. We are transformed. Mm-hmm. That's my prayer for us this morning. As I pray over the bread, my prayer is that as you take communion, you receive what you need to be able to give him what he commands. Yes, that's good. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for this moment of communion where we are reminded again that apart from you, we have no good thing. We can do no good thing. But with you, all things are indeed possible. So, Father, I pray that as we take of your bread of life, as we acknowledge that you alone are our source, that you will empower each person to give you what you are asking so that you can give them what they actually need, so that you can bring balance and integrity and peace and pure motive and a willing heart to each of us.